You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Welcome to Dr. Geek's Laboratory. Hello everyone, Dr. Geek here with a shout out to all the scientists who worked tirelessly to bring a COVID-19 vaccine into reality. <laughs> Let's face it, creating something of this magnitude is a miracle worthy of Dr. McCoy himself. And now, Dr. Geek needs you to do your part. Remember, each shot is one small step back to normal, one giant leap to putting the pandemic behind us. We can do this. For more information, visit vaccines.gov to find your nearest provider. Welcome to the 42 cast, your ultimate answer to fandom, geekiness, and everything. As always, I am your host, Nathan, and we have another great episode lined up for you where I get to interview John Peel. John Peel is an author who worked on Doctor Who, both fiction and nonfiction, about the series in the 80s, 90s, and even in the 2000s. He's written for Star Trek, he's written for The Outer Limits. He writes a lot of his own original fiction, and lately he's been writing for the character of Dr. Omega, which is a character that actually comes from French science fiction around the turn of the century, and that's a whole other story that we're going to get into, and the possibility that Dr. Omega may have actually inspired Doctor Who. But John was very generous with his time. He sat down with me and we talked for a good hour about the different projects that he's worked on, sort of the course of his career, and mostly about Doctor Who, but a few other things as well. It was pretty cool, pretty interesting. So, uh, you know, if you're a longtime Doctor Who fan and you were in the scene where you were reading the novels back then, I think this would be very fascinating. And I think even for people now who are kind of curious about Doctor Who, about Doctor Who original fiction and how all that stuff came about, or if you want to learn about a series that you might want to get into that's going on right now, which is the Doctor Omega stuff, or Doctor Omega, if you're on the other side of the pond, we talk about that too. So, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good stuff in here. The one thing I will note is that John raises lovebirds. Those are a kind of parrot. And they are audible during <laughs> the podcast. So just so you know, just uh, you know, during the recording, they were definitely uh, making some noise, and so you can hear that. You can definitely hear what John is saying. It's not like they overpower it, but I'm just letting you know that there will be sounds in there. Otherwise, not much else to report right now. Beth and I, you know, are continuing to do well in our sort of quarantine lockdown, you know, uh, thing. We're, we're not really relaxing, you know, right now. We're still going out with masks and everything just because we want to make sure that everything is perfectly safe. Want to make sure our kids get vaccinated first. Our oldest is going to get vaccinated soon because that's a thing now. And yeah, so I'm not going to take up any more time talking about that. So let's uh, go to a promo for another fine podcast and then we'll get on with the interview with John. 
Are you tired of podcasts only covering good movies or bad movies? Where could you possibly turn to find both in one convenient place? There has got to be a better way! Well, now there is. Try the podcast Double-Edged Double Bill, where Adam and Thomas dive into both a good and a bad film in every episode. Sound too good to be true? Well, listen to this testimonial. Double-Edged Double Bill got me to watch Total Recall and Junior in one night. I was both entertained and scarred permanently. Thanks, Double-Edged Double Bill. Available now on the ESO Network and wherever podcasts are streamed. And we're back. And like I mentioned at the top of the show, we have author John Peel with us today. John, welcome to the 42 cast. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Yeah, we're glad to have you. Um, I've actually been reading your books since I was nine years old. That's kind of encouraging and not encouraging at the same time. <laughs> so long, it's very nice, but... Uh. Well, you don't know how old I am. So, I mean, no, there you go. So, you know, it could be any length of time, really. <laughs> but uh, how are you uh, holding up with all this quarantining and even though it's sort of relaxing now and everything? How, how are things going? Oh, well, I always stayed at home anyway to do the writing. So that's not affected me in the slightest. Just that I always like to be able to relax at the end of a day, and that would generally involve going to shops or just playing around, and I can't do that now. So I've had to just, you know, discover a few extra things to do instead. <laughs> Other than that, hopefully the um, quarantine will be lifting soon. So I'm looking forward to being able to run around and do things again. Yeah, no, I hear you on that one because yeah, it's 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 gone on a lot longer than I thought it would. I know. Uh, yeah, I was expecting maybe three months. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> Fifteen months ago. <laughs> right. All right. So you've been a fan of Doctor Who for a very long time. Now, were you someone who was watching with the very first episode of An Unearthly Child? No, I didn't start at the beginning. Not the first episode or anything. What happened was, back in those days, you had to turn your TV on five minutes or so before you actually wanted it to give it time to warm up and actually produce a picture. And we had thought, we'd, we'd seen a listing for Doctor Who, and this was the time of all those medical dramas. Doctor Kildare was hugely popular. And we thought, oh, it's just another one of those medical dramas, and we ignored it. And we wanted to watch what was on after Doctor Who one night. And this was the actually when they aired the fourth episode, The End of Tribe of Gum. And so we turned the TV on a little early, and we see these cavemen, and there's a police box in the middle of nowhere and these figures running towards it in having spears chucked at them and we're watching it going if this is a medical show I mean, <laughs> so then of course we got the sequence where they run inside into the TARDIS and take off 
And by that point, we were hooked. I mean, my, my entire family were like, what is this? We've got to watch it. <laughs> Watched the first episode of The Daleks, of course, mm-hmm. that was the next week. And that was it. I mean, once we, we saw the first episode of The Daleks, there was no way we weren't watching the show. So pretty much from that point on, we, um, we were watching it. Oh, that's really awesome. Now, in those days, was it considered a phenomenon? Was it hugely popular or did it take time for it to sort of build into the thing that it is today? It took two weeks. The second episode of the Daleks, once the Daleks appeared, I'm not joking here, we we would go, I was nine years old, so the school was at the top of the street where I lived, so we went to school and all the kids were going, exterminate, exterminate, and going around the, um, the, the schoolyard. They had their hands out in the right positions and everything. And it was just phenomenal. And each week, more people were coming into it. It was a huge success. The BBC was caught cold with it. They never expected anything like that. Um, But the story, it just drove everybody crazy. And it lasted for a good long long time, actually. I remember um, as a kid... We went on holiday one time, and I went into a Woolworths, and they had all these Dalek jigsaws all over the place, and Dalek little rollikins, they were called, tiny little Daleks, mm-hmm. around. And it was, it was everywhere. It was literally everywhere. I mean, Daleks were like an infestation. There was nothing like it. There was no. nothing. And um, it, it was huge. And there really wasn't anything at all like that until Thunderbirds came along um, a couple of years later. And then that sort of took over instead. And it was Thunderbirds mania instead of Dalek mania. But the Daleks had just made such an impact. It was incredible. So have you been a fan of Doctor Who all through that period? Or have you come and gone from the series at different periods? I came and went really. Uh, I remember I, I didn't, I, I missed a good deal of the third season of Harnell after watching the Daleks, of course. Um, but but I, I remember Skip, I can't remember why. Oh, that was 60, that would be 65. So it was probably Thunderbirds um, <laughs> which had come in at that point. Although I'm not sure that they were on the same night. I, I can't really remember, but I know we, we missed a few. Mm-hmm. And um, then with the regeneration into Pat Troughton, I, I was absolutely appalled. I was like, what has happened? You know, I couldn't take the this new idiot in the place of the doctor. Yeah, it must have been a real shock at the time because, I mean, like, no show had ever done that before. And... Um, it was just so weird. I mean, I liked the Daleks in the story, but mm-hmm. I wasn't at all sure I liked this Doctor. I did remember. I do remember catching bits of other episodes, but only bits. I know I didn't see the Highlanders, and I did see Moonbase. Mm-hmm. With the, I, I think because the Sidemen were back, that's why I watched that one. But then there was a gap, and. The next one I can remember, clearly remember seeing, was The Mind Robber. So 
So I mean, it was it was like most of Troughton's era I missed, mm-hmm. and um, I, I watched the Mind Robber, and that started me watching it again. But once the regeneration of Pertwee came about, that was when I really, really, really started dedicatedly watching every single episode. I, w- I would not miss any. Um, I just adored the early Pertwees, and mm. um, it just kept getting better and better as far as I was concerned. So um, I've been watching it since quite avidly. Have, do you have a favorite doctor? Oh, well, Hartnell, of course, because he was the one I came in on. And I think after that, probably Pertwee. Mm. It's hard to, hard to decide because, I mean, Hartnell was the first. So, mm-hmm. you know, he started it all for me. Um, but Pertwee was the one that really grabbed me. And that was when everything started happening. I mean, with the Pertwee era, we started getting the Target books and other things. So it was a, a like a major growth spurt at that point. And then, of course, when Tom Baker came in, the, um, the early Tom Bakers, they were just you know, magnificent, real. So uh, it just kept building and building again, which was terrific. So with how the series has gone and how many of the Doctors have pulled in more of those comedic elements, have you gone back to Troughton and sort of reevaluated Troughton from your initial impression of him? Oh, very much so. When the um, the videos started coming out, and I had a chance to catch up on the, on the episodes I'd missed, mm-hmm. I was kicking myself. And I was like, "How could I not like this?" You know. I think the first one I caught of the um, of the Trouts that I missed was Tomb of the Cybermen, mm. and. I mean, I was just entranced with that one. That was just such a good story, so well done. And as each one has come out, watching them again, well, some of them, some of them again, most of them for the first time, I was very much more impressed, especially with Pat Troughton. I mean, Pat, I, uh, he, he's such a great actor. And his characterization and uh, mannerisms are just beautiful. Mm-hmm. It was exactly what they really needed after the first Doctor to completely alter the um, the scope of the show, I think. Yeah, because, I mean, if it was just someone pretending to be Hartnell, I don't think the show would have lasted that long. I don't think it would have lasted a season after that because mm-hmm. nobody could have replaced Hartnell as the first Doctor. Mm-hmm. Doing this... I mean, it was an incredibly crazy and risky thing to do, regeneration. But it was the only way to go. They were they were very smart about it. They realized that they couldn't replace Hartnell, so they had to just sidetrack and go into a different direction. Um, and that worked beautifully. In the 70s, like you mentioned, that's sort of when fandom really took off because there were the Target books. I know that that's when Terrence Dix published a book about the making of Doctor Who, and there are several things that happened there. And of course, fanzines started up in the 70s. So were you involved in sort of those fanzine type projects and things of that nature? Oh, yes. I I, I was dragged in, in fact. What happened was there was a fan group called Doctor Who Appreciation Society. Mm -hmm advertised that they um, they needed members in some comic um, publication that we read. A friend of mine, Steve Evans, and I, we met every, sat- every Saturday evening to watch either Doctor Who, Star Trek, or Lost in Space, whatever was on at that particular hour. 
because the BBC rotated them. Mm-hmm. We would watch the show and then we'd go upstairs and sit and write our own stories. And we had gotten this fa- this magazine and it, there was this advertisement. And Steve said, "Oh, I think I want to join that. You can, you can, you know, come on. We'll, we'll both do it." And I sort of said, oh, all right, yeah, okay. Because I, I, I'm not very much of a joiner. I don't join. Mm-hmm. So he dragged me into it. We paid our money. We got our subscription. We got the, um, the TARDIS magazine, um, which came out whenever they found enough material to publish one. I've always been terribly opinionated when it comes to stories. And there was this terrible, terrible story from my point of view, um, published in, in the, um, the fanzine. And I wrote a letter to the editor saying, can't you do any better than that? <laughs> As I said, I've always been very opinionated, even back then. So he wrote, he wrote, actually wrote back to me and he said, no, can you do any better? So that was it. Steve and I decided we'd prove that you could do Doctor Who stories properly. So we wrote five or six stories between us. You know, he wrote one, I wrote one, you know. And we, we sent them into um, the editor, Gordon Blows. And Gordon loved them. And he said, I'm going to publish, print them all in a special issue. And what we need is a, a writer's pool to produce writers that can write stories for the magazines. And he said, and he asked Steve and I to take charge of it, which was insane because we had no idea what we were doing. I mean, this was, we were just fans writing stories we liked. But I got inveigled into, um, into editing this with Steve. And then Steve, who was always very moody, said, ah, oh, I'm fed up of this, and quit, and left me to do it all by myself, which I did for um, a couple of years. Um, but then at the end of that was the time I was coming to America. So it passed on to other hands, and it's still going strong, I gather. I, I still see them turning up, which I think is a great thing. I mean, as a writer, that was my start. Mm-hmm. I, I'm very, very much into um, fan stories, fan fiction. I think it's a good way of honing your writing skills. Um, you're playing in a, in a world that someone else has created and set the rules to, and it's a lot easier that way. Mm-hmm. So I've always been in favor of it. <laughs> <laughs> this is almost the counterpoint, because Terrence Dix kind of famously told Paul Cornell, you don't go into writing, writing for Doctor Who. You go into writing because you want to be a writer, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And he says that Paul Cornell proved him wrong because he is someone that came in wanting to write Doctor Who and then from there branched out into other things. <laughs> With writing, you get in any way you possibly can. I remember another Terrence Dick saying was, of course it's hard to get into writing, otherwise everybody would be doing it. And this is true. It's very hard to get into writing. You just get in any way you can. And then hopefully you've got something in mind once you've gotten there. So had you been considering writing as your profession before you worked on the fanzine? Or was that something that working on that you decided, oh, this is something I want to do full time? Oh, no, no. I'd always wanted to be a writer. Um, I remember very clearly wanting to be a writer when I was about 10. 
and I wrote things from my school magazine. Anything I could write, I would write. And some of them still exist. <laughs> Goodness me. That was the whole goal. I always wanted to be a writer. As I said, we, I went over to my friend Steve's house. Um, we would, you know, sit, spend the whole of Saturday evening writing stories. Not together. We very rarely wrote anything together. But we, he would sit and I would sit and we would both write on our work on the stories and then we would read them to each other and then we could we would make comments, you know, and everything. So it was a way of practicing. So the fanzine was really the natural progression. And then from that, my idea was to turn professional. And I bugged the editor of Doctor Who, Man uh, Mon Doctor Who Weekly at that point. I said, I have ideas. Can you buy them? You know, And he was like, well, send them to me. And he liked them. So that was really how I got into writing. Doctor Who was my entry point into writing. Nice. So I believe the next thing that you wrote Doctor Who-wise was the official Doctor Who and the Daleks book that you co-wrote with uh, Terry Nation. Yeah. So yeah. how did you meet Terry? I didn't. <laughs> what happened was St. Martin's Press over here in New York had decided that they wanted to get in on Doctor Who. It had started taking off over here, and they could see that it was going to be quite large, quite big. And they decided they'd love to write, you know, have a book published about uh, some way connected to Doctor Who, because they could see that there was going to be money in it. <laughs> Smart. And the trouble was the editor didn't know anything about the show. Literally nothing. And he heard that I did, because I was editing a magazine at that time, and he then called me up and explained who he was and what he was doing. And he said, you know, I want to do a Doctor Who book. I've got a few proposals. Can I read them to you? And you can tell me whether they'll work or not. So he started reading these proposals, and they were dreadful. I mean, absolutely dreadful. And I said, no, no, that won't work. And I mean, one of them, I the only one I can remember, it was called something like, Why Tom Baker is the Greatest Actor. And I was like, yeah, but if you put that, it, it'll annoy anybody who likes any of the other ones better. So I said, you know, you won't get very far with that idea. And he went through the whole list, and they were all terrible. And they told him, honestly, you, you won't get anywhere with any of these ideas. So he said, well, have you got any ideas? And I said, well, Terry Nation wrote this Dalek handbook, uh, pocketbook, Dalek pocketbook. Um, back in the 60s, and I, I think with a bit of updating, that would do you better. So he said, oh, okay, John, um, could you contact Terry for us and, you know, see if he, he's interested? So <laughs> I'm thinking, oh, all right, yeah. Um, so I, I, I did know someone who was in um, Blake Seven family who knew Terry. So I contacted her and I said, you know, could you ask Terry if I can talk to him? And she got me his phone number and passed it on. And I called Terry up. We had a really lovely chat. And I explained what my idea was. And he said, ah, oh, well, John, um, I'm kind of busy right now on MacGyver. He was working on the first season of MacGyver. Uh, he said, but um, maybe you could have a look, see if you could update the book for me. 
So I had a look and I realized updating it really wouldn't work. It would have to be totally rewritten. So I told Terry this and he said, oh, well, all right. Why don't, why don't you rewrite it and stick my name on it with you and we'll you know, sell it that way. <laughs> so that was basically how the book came about, mostly over the phone. I mean, I hadn't met the editor. I hadn't met Terry. All I'd gotten was all these con- you know, telephone conversations. So um, we, we started from that. And I met Terry afterwards, um, after this. Uh, but um, at the time, I hadn't met, you know, I hadn't actually physically met him at all. Okay, interesting. And I, I imagine that in some way that must have led to doing the novelizations of The Chase and The Daleks Master Plan, because now you have a relationship with him, and those are two stories that hadn't been done by Target yet. So how did that happen? Well, that was exactly what happened. Every now and again, Target would call up Terry and say, can we have permission to do the Daleks book? You know, the Dalek stories, missing ones. And Terry would always say no, because he, he'd really not liked the previous couple that they'd done. He thought they were just flimsy nothings, and they weren't appealing to him. But when they called him, they called, as we were writing the, the um, Dalek book, they called him and said, can we please have the rights for the Dalek books again? You know, and they were expecting him to say, no, get lost. Um, and then this time he said, can I pick who gets to write them? And they said, sure. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, they, if he said, can my pet monkey write them, they would have <laughs> said yes to that because it will have had Dalek on the cover. That's mm. what they wanted because the Dalek books always sold better than any of the other targets. Mm-hmm. So they didn't care who wrote them as long as they were written, which was lucky. Because then Terry called me up and said, John, dear boy, would you like to write a Dalek novel? And I said, yeah, sure, why? And he said, oh, well, I've just told Target that you're going to. And that was how it happened, literally, that easily. I had no idea about it until he'd half negotiated the thing and then called me up. I mean, I don't honestly know if he'd ever seen any fiction that I'd written at that point. But he knew from talking to me that I understood his approach to the Daleks. And he knew that we had the same aims in mind with the Daleks. Mm -hmm. So he felt that he could hand the project over to me and it would be handled in a way that he would approve. So that was pretty much how it all came about. I contacted the target and I said, look, I'm not doing a 128-page huge print novelization here. Um, I want to write a proper story, uh, a proper book. And they said, yeah, yeah, no problem. As I say, they wanted the dialogue so badly, they would agree to anything. So they agreed to that. And um, I worked from that um, and wrote just what I thought was just a regular novel. Mm -hmm. Um, And they, they laid no restrictions on me whatsoever which was lovely oh that is nice and yeah i know with the daleks master plan they get to sell two books instead of one so i mean that's i'm sure (laughs) they like that that was a funny story because when they um when we finished the chase they liked what i'd done so they said can we do the next one and terry said sure and i said yeah i'm fine i'm happy with it and i said but I am not doing a little book based on 13 episodes 
I mean, this was after the um, the war games had come out, and it was this tiny little volume. And I said, I'm not doing that. I said, either we do a big book, a really big book, like 250 pages, or we do it as too small a book. So they said, okay, which would you prefer? And I said, two smaller books. And they said, fine, we can do them a month apart. That'll be great. And I called Terry up and told him. And Terry said, John, why did you say two books and not one big one? I said, two books, two advances. And Terry just broke down laughing. And he said, John, you're thinking like a real writer now. <laughs> it, was, it was the funniest thing that he'd heard me say, I think. <laughs> so he, he just loved it. And I didn't actually tell him the other reason why I wanted it as two volumes. It was because I wanted to put a gap in the story. So that, because we were coming to the very end at that point of all the stories that hadn't been novelized. Mm -hmm. And I could see that there were going to be, um, or we would have to do original novels if it was going to go any further. So I wanted to create a gap in which we could add further Hartnell adventures with Sarah Kingdom. Mm -hmm. But I didn't tell Terry that that would have been too famish, I think. <laughs> so I kept that one to myself. <laughs> so Big Finish has you to owe for the stories they've done with Sarah Kingdom and Stephen. <laughs> well, I thought there would be some use for it somewhere along the line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, before we had all these audio, you know, like people found that people have recorded on audio and everything. That was the only way to appreciate that story was through your novelization. That's right. how I first read it. So it's really great that we got that. And I'm glad that Terry let you do that. Oh, I was so thrilled with it. It was brilliant. <laughs> And then, like you said, Virgin, because they had bought Target, they were working on doing new stories with Doctor Who, and they had this book come out before that called The Gallifrey Chronicles that you wrote. Oh, yes, that's right. And so did they approach you about doing that, or, or did that come? Did you pitch that to them, or how did that happen? Actually, I don't remember quite. What happened with The Gallifrey Chronicles was when I did the book for St. Martin's, the official Doctor Who and Daleks book, they said, well, we'd like another one after this, please. And I thought, well, to do a full book, you'd have to have something that there was more of. So I pitched the official Doctor Who and the Time Lords book. And they liked the idea. And I, was, I sat down drafting concepts and everything for it. And then the sales figures came in for the Dalek book. And it was a lot lower than they had hoped. So they decided, OK, we're not going to do that. But at the time I was talking to my editor at WH Allen, I mentioned to him that this had been cancelled. And he said, send me this outline and I'll have a look at it. And he liked it. And we worked from that. Um, I kept saying, how about we do this? How about we do that? And whatever. And he liked the whole idea. And we did the whole book. And then, to my immense surprise, somehow or other, he got permission. What, the one thing we, we had trouble with for the Dalek book was getting permission from the BBC to print pictures. Mm. They, they were charging a fortune for photographs, so we couldn't really use very many. And then somehow in between then and the Gallifrey Chronicles, they'd loosened up, and Gallifrey had so many pictures i was just amazed mm -hmm. uh, i'm thrilled i was very happy with it 
Yeah, I actually have Fraser Hines and Wendy Padbury's autographs in my copy of the Gallifrey Chronicles because <laughs> there's a photo of them from the war games in there. Right. So, yeah. Oh, I, I have a copy I take to conventions as well, and I've gotten about 150 names in it so far. <laughs> but yes, it's, it's, it's wonderful for that. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah, yeah, it's a nice big book too, so they can write nice and large in there. But that sort of was the start of everything that Virgin then went on to do with the new adventures was it was kind of set out in the Gallifrey Chronicle. I remember reading at the time, you know, I'm a young kid reading the, this and it's just like, wow, this is so amazing because this is taking Doctor Who somewhere new. Right. Because I, being an American, was lucky enough to watch most of what existed on PBS because they had gone and where I lived all the way from Hartnell through to McCoy. And so I had seen most of the stories. So then they, they start the new adventures and you, of course, are the first writer right. on the new adventures. And so again, was that something that was kind of, they, they came up with the idea and said, Hey, we need some writers for this and asked you, or, or was that something where you pitched it or how did that come about? Oh, well, that was a bit of everything. It was Peter Darville Evans, the name I was thinking, of course, Peter, Peter, I knew he was approaching the point where he was going to be either doing new stories or just stopping the entire line. And I was pitching myself at him to um, write any new story if it came up. And one day he did call me and he said, okay, John, we're going to do new stories now. We're going to start with this thing. Um, we've got this idea. And he explained very, very vaguely the idea of the time world, mm -hmm. he said. And it's going to be a four-book series, and I want you to write one of them. And I'm like, the heck with one of them. I want to write the first. Because I'm, you know, that would be, from my point of view, as a fan, writing the first original authorized novel was just too, too appealing. So I literally sat down overnight, wrote a synopsis, sent it to Peter. Uh, this was a, the, way before um, computer, uh, computer conversations and email and things. Um, I actually had to fax it to him from some business in town. And I faxed him the, uh, this idea I had. I came up with this idea uh, because he was, he was explaining that the time room was this myth and everything. And what have you. And I came up with the idea of a computer mind that used human minds as floppy disks, which shows mm -hmm. you how old the story is. <laughs> and basically the idea was that the Doctor and Ace land on this planet, uh, which seems perfectly normal, until all of a sudden everybody switches on and becomes part of the hive mind. And I've, I've written, I can't even remember a little bit, I've probably still got the outline somewhere, but I wrote this whole thing up and zipped it to him. And the next day I got a call from Peter saying, ah, John, yes, like the idea, but it won't work because I think I probably forgot to tell you, I wanted something with Mesopotamians in it. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that didn't, you hadn't mentioned that at all. <laughs> He explained he wanted to do um, a storyline where they, it starts in the far past and ends in the far future. Mm. 
and he and he wanted me to come up with the one for the past. And he said, "Have you ever heard of Gilgamesh?" And I said, "Funny you should mention that." And I reached up on my bookshelf and pulled down my copy of the Epic of Gilgamesh. I said, "Love it." So he was like, "Great, you're perfect for it." Then write me an outline with Gilgamesh. I said, um, "Yeah, that's not a problem, but." If Gilgamesh is going to be a character, we're going to have a few tricky moments in here. And he says, what do you mean? I said, well, he wasn't the nicest guy in the world, you know. <laughs> and he said, ah, don't worry about that. Um, so I said, well, I'm going to have to put some sex in there because he was basically the horniest guy on the planet at the time, you know. I, and people were scared of him because he was strong. But they hated him because he kept going around seducing their wives. And, you know, you, I can't get away from that. What am I going to do about that? And he said, oh, well, John, don't worry about it. No gratuitous sex unless the story calls for it. <laughs> so I was like, okay. And we did get a little flack, as you probably recall, <laughs> over um, the thing. And what he also wanted was that he, he explained he wanted to reset the show basically he was doing it as if he was writing the next season but he said he wanted to make it science fiction for science fiction readers not science fiction for Doctor Who readers only he wanted to expand the market a bit so he said you know he wanted it to be a little more adult a little bit more depth a little more thought through and so we worked from that but I, I worked very hard to become the first one to write the thing. In fact, when I met Terence Dix a few years back, uh, I said to Terence, you know, really, you should have been the one to write the first one. And I hope I didn't upset you by be beating you to it. He said, oh, no, not at all, John. I knew the first one would get all the fans totally irate because it wouldn't be what they wanted. I said, I want to do the second one because it would be safer. <laughs> So that was quite funny. Yeah, Terence has been uh, playing this game for quite a while, so he was savvy to that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> he knew what was coming. Right, exactly. So yeah, but then um, you didn't write for the new adventures for the rest of the run. So was there a reason that you didn't write for it, or was it just that you were working on other projects and didn't have time? What happened originally was that I was working on other projects. And I think that was when I was doing my first Star Trek book at the same time. And it was an incredibly busy time for me. I remember one year I, around then I wrote 14 books. So I was getting kind of a lot of things to do. And then by the time I had a look at the... Um, I was still buying the new adventures mostly putting them in a big pile on, on, in my closet. But by the time I got around to looking at them and seeing what was happening, I realized that it was going in a direction that I couldn't write. I mean, not necessarily a bad direction. It was just something that I wasn't comfortable working with. Mm -hmm. So I just sort of passed after that. I, just, I didn't come up with any further ideas. As I say, I was very busy on other things. Mm -hmm. And I, you know that kept me busy. Otherwise, I would have gone back. And in fact, when BBC Books took over the, uh, the range, they asked me very in, you know, early on, would I like to be part of that? And I said, oh, yes, definitely. Uh, I was very happy to go back. 
And I know that you wrote a missing adventure also for Virgin when they yes. started that line with Evolution. So did they ask you to write a Tom Baker, your know, fourth doctor and Sarah story, or did you get to choose like who you wanted to use in that story? I pitched, this was when they were starting the line and he, and Peter told me, look, we're doing this and you can pick whatever team, you know, TARDIS team you want. Mm. And being me, I got greedy. And I said, well, I pitched this idea where the story starts with the third Doctor and Sarah. There's a pause in the middle, and then it take, picks up again a few years later with the fourth Doctor and Sarah. Oh, that would have been interesting. Which I thought would be fun. And I pitched this one to him, and he said, um, no, we're not doing multiple Doctor adventures yet. No, pick one or the other. So I picked the Tom Baker and Sarah mix because they were actually my favorite at that point of all time you know i, I just love those two they, the, the interaction was just brilliant between tom and liz mm -hmm. so um I, I that was it had to be those two which i would have loved to have done a pertwee one but i never got around to it and again i i did this one and i had so much fun with it um, it was great fun. I remember when I met Liz, I was working on Evolution when I was doing a convention and that I had invited Liz. And I got to meet Liz. And I, was, I told her I'm doing this book with the fourth Doctor and Sarah. I said, and Sarah gets to meet her writing idol. And Liz grabbed my shoulders and said, who is it? And I said, it's Rudyard Kipling because he was a journalist who became a writer, an author. And she said, Oh, thank God it's not somebody stupid. <laughs> it was the biggest hug. Even then, she was still very protective of Sarah and mm -hmm. she was so glad that I, I'd done something that she approved of. So that was lovely. That is a great story. Mm. But yeah, like you mentioned, then BBC Books started and you wrote War of the Daleks, which was a little controversial at the time. I'm good at that. I was on rec.arts.doctor who at the time, even though I didn't really post much, I was reading a lot of what happened and yeah so i saw a lot of the back and forth which was interesting because i thought that as a writer and knowing how important doctor who is it was interesting that you came on the forum and basically said look this is what i'm writing and as part of what i'm writing i am required mm -hmm. to sort of retcon some of the events remembrance of the daleks garo has to come back but i want you to tell me all the things that you think wouldn't work <laughs> so i can write around them and I thought, that's great. You're using all these people who watch frame by frame and, you know, all that stuff and using their knowledge so that you could write the best possible story. But yeah, I saw that there was probably the first time I've ever seen like fans just go crazy angry at somebody. <laughs> for well, it turned out, I, I mean, I didn't like the, pr I, I say I didn't like it. When Remembrance came out, Terry called me up. And I'd never heard him like this before. Absolutely fuming. Mm. He was furious with it because he said that the destruction of Scarrow had not been in the original outline that he had approved. And he was so angry. And he, he said, that man, that man, meaning JNT, mm -hmm. will never have the Daleks again. As it turned out, he didn't have the show again either. 
And I had, by this point, I had thought, oh, it would be fun to kind of pitch a Doctor Who story to the BBC themselves. So I started writing this outline called War of the Daleks as a four-part TV series. And I'd written most of it up. And I was going to tell Terry and see what he thought of it. But when I had that call, he was, I realized, mm, probably not a good idea. And I shelved it. And when I was asked to do the BBC books, I remembered that one. And I thought, I still like that idea, the War of the Daleks, the, uh, the idea of the two factions. Because I was getting really fed up with the way JNT kept dragging out the the two, the Imperial Daleks and Davros Daleks and whatever. And I, I just wanted to finish it completely. That was the whole idea of War of the Daleks. Just stop that so he couldn't keep going on with the same thing over and over and over and over. Mm -hmm. So that was the basic concept behind War of the Daleks. And then Terry said, when I asked Terry about doing an original Dalek novel, he said, oh, yeah, fine. Go ahead, John. But if you can, can you bring Scarrow back? And I said, not a problem, which I always say when anybody asks me if I can write something, not a problem. And I wrote the outline up from that, and BBC Books approved it. And if you actually read War of the Daleks, you, you'll see the four chapter and the, the four places where the episodes would have ended. And, I mean, the first one is the obvious bit where the Daleks come in and they say to the Doctor, you know, you are the enemy of the Daleks you will be protected. And then that was going to be the ending of the book. So you, you get fed up with them always saying, you know, you are the enemy of the Daleks, you will be destroyed, and then they don't. So I thought, let's do it the other way around. And we went from there. And Terry loved the ideas. He was very happy with what I did with them, um, especially with the Thals, when I said, you know, <laughs> the Thals have basically become proto-Daleks. And he said, yes, yes, that's always a danger. And he liked that very much. He, he was very pleased when, with me for coming up with that one. So that was the last of my books he actually approved because he, he passed away before I wrote the next one. Mm. Kind of special in a lot of ways. So yeah, with that next book, it was Legacy of the Daleks and <laughs> included The Master and Susan. Uh, set in the post-Dalek invasion of Earth world. So there's a lot of elements coming in from previous Doctor Who stories. Now, this is something where I've heard several different stories about this, and I wanted to hear from you because you're the one who would know. Yeah. So it seemed odd to me at the time that it was a story with the Master, the Delgado version of the Master with the Eighth Doctor. And I've heard alternating versions that it was originally going to be a third Doctor story, but then I've heard another story that, no, it was always going to be an Eighth Doctor story, but you might have suggested at one point that it could be a third Doctor story. And so I'm just kind of curious, did it start as a third Doctor story or was it always an Eighth Doctor story? Neither, actually. What originally started, and we have to go back to my uh, days in the Doctor Who Appreciation Society, I was editing Cosmic Mask, and I wrote a short story for it in which Sarah, uh, Susan meets the Roger Delgado master. And that was the genesis of it, that idea. When I came to write Legacy, I remembered that idea and I thought, you know, I'd written it as a short story back in 1980, I think. But I thought, 
I could do more with it. And I started planning it around that. So basically, it started as a Susan story. And then, because it was for an Ace Doctor series, I thought, well, yeah. He always said he would meet her again. You know, and being the Doctor, he's really, really late. <laughs> and that's how it came about. I also wanted to make it fun by, not, by having Susan miss him. Quite catch him. And they, they're kind of passing in the night, so he, he doesn't actually get to meet her. It was a fun idea I had. I thought, well, wouldn't it be funny if after all this time they don't meet? And it, it, it came, it grew from that. Mm-hmm. I just like the idea of having a sequel to um, Dalek Invasion Earth in the sense that we see how things are progressing mm-hmm. and how it's not going quite the way it was expected to go. And also, I wanted to deal with Susan, who, apart, I mean, Susan was my first love on the show. I mean, the Doctor I liked, but Susan was more closer to my age. She was more interesting. She was a kind of spooky girl. So I always had this thing for her. And um, when I had the chance, I thought, okay, I'm going to bring Susan back, you know. So that's how that one came about. And... Uh, the original story had, had had ended. The short story version had ended with you know uh, Delgado's master being blown up by Susan and then having to regenerate. Mm-hmm. I mean that's all from the short story. As a funny part to add to the end of it, I wrote originally a little um, afterward saying that this story actually originally appeared as a short story in a fanzine. And the editor called me up and says, God, John, I'm sorry, I am not printing that. He says, if I print that, everybody who's ever written for a bloody fanzine in the universe is going to think, my story can do that. And I'll be inundated with crazy fan fiction. So he he made me take that bit out of the end. I can see his point. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Although I agree with you about Susan, though, because I mean, when I watched those early ones, I was a young, you know, I mean, I was just below teenage, let's say, and I found Carol Ann Ford compelling. I know nowadays it's very popular in fandom to be very negative with Susan, but no, I've always thought that she's very compelling and did a very great job with that role. Yeah, yeah. Mysterious chick. That's right. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, so now uh, you're working on Dr. Omega, well, I guess Omega is the British pronunciation. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Omega, yeah, I call it. So yeah, I mean, this has been a fascinating revelation to me in in recent years because I had never heard of the character before. But the more you investigate it, the more it seems like, could Sidney Newman have had this character in mind when he created Dr. Who? Because there are a lot of crazy similarities between the two characters and so i'm curious were you someone who had been familiar with dr omega for years or was it fairly recently or how did you come by the character well my friend jean-marc lafissier edits a series of annual releases called tales of the shadowman Mm -hmm. and he owns um, his own press his own company in france And he's been translating a lot of the old French stories into English and reissuing them. And one of the characters he found was Dr. Omega. And he said to to me, I think you'll like this guy. And sent me the story. And, of course, I loved him. 
but I had not heard of him before I wrote my first Dr. Omegas story for John Mark. There is a, a huge similarity in places between him and William Hartnell. There's also a lot of differences, which is good. I mean, he's not, they're not clones of each other or anything. Um, it, it, it was really fascinating. I really found it fun. And somehow or other, he, he kind of kept diversifying, kept exploding in different directions. <laughs> and people would say, can you write me a Dr. Omega story? And I would do this and uh, go off. And it, it was just one of those things. And then Andrew um, Skeletor said to me, how about we redo him in a new fashion, which is what we've been doing, and giving him a, a, compa a different companion a backstory for the world that he's living in at this point. And Andrew just let me get away with everything. <laughs> he just sort of said, okay, John, you're, you're the writer. You write the stories and I'll, you know, I'll do the publishing and the illustrating and everything. So we had fun with it, really. It's been good fun. But I don't, I don't really, he's not a Hartnell clone. He's not a substitute. He's just someone who has a lot of similarities but different motivations and things like that. Yeah, that's one of the things that I wanted to ask you about when you had mentioned you gave him the, the new companion, Miss Amelia Midnight. And, you know, because uh, you go to the original story, because I was sort of fascinated by this, so I did pick up the original novel, and it's told from the point of view of Dennis Borel, and yes. then you've got Fred also as uh, sort of like the strong man, you know, character that goes with them nice. on their journey. And so I was kind of surprised reading that first book when it's like they're left behind. <laughs> and so I was just kind of curious about why you, you left behind the established characters that were with him and introduced a new character. That was Andrew. Andrew came up with the format and he said, you know, we'll keep them in the background. They'll be there and they'll turn up from time to time. But I really want to take this new character, Miss Midnight, and use her as well. As make, making them kind of like a pair of equals but opposites because he thought it would work better and I have to admit it's great fun writing the dialogue between them because they they have very different aims and very different points of view mm -hmm. yeah I will say from my point of view I, I have really enjoyed the dialogue in those books especially there were the characters you introduced in the first one that were sort of like intelligent velociraptors that I particularly found hilarious, but also it, it worked within the story, but it was also just these very, very erudite, you know, sophisticated velociraptors. <laughs> what originally Dr. Omega was going to be was like the old English Christmas annuals. Mm. There would be a mixture of text story and comic strips. And that was how... Andrew had originally visited. So the first novel, in fact, was made up from three short stories that I'd written, three little bits that were going to be, the idea was that it was going to be short stories um, scattered through the book that linked together to make the whole story. Mm -hmm. But then he found that it would be too expensive to do what he had in mind. So then he switched to just doing it as a novel. So I basically had to go back, take the stories and rewrite them as a novel. But I, I like the idea of doing the unexpected because you get fed up with doing alien invasions mm -hmm. uh, and things like that because they're overused. 
And I, I really wanted to steer away from that kind of thing completely. And I thought, wouldn't it be funny to have intelligent because it, I mean, you know, you see these the shows now, the intelligent velociraptors, and uh, who have a, a terribly English mannerisms. <laughs> it just struck me as funny, but at the same time, why not? Because mm -hmm. who's to say? That's why when I gave him a translator device. I pointed out that it's not translating literally, it's translating the meaning, mm -hmm. not actually what they're saying, but what they're meaning. So as a result of which, I could give them any kind of personality I wanted. And that was fun. That was great fun. Um, we've done the two novels completely. Book three he has at the moment, and he's kind of he's been distracted Unfortunately, hmm. but it's book three. I actually got so enthralled with it, I wrote six. Oh. There are six already finished mm -hmm. novels. And it was kind of fun to do. The, the book six is probably one of my favorites because I thought, let's do something completely unexpected and different. And book six is a um, film noir kind of setting. It's actually told from the first person, and the main character is a Los Angeles private eye in the 1940s. And Dr. Omega doesn't even turn up until about halfway through the book. Hmm. But I wanted to do, because we could do this, I thought. We aren't in the position where with Doctor Who, where you can't do that, because you've got to sell Doctor Who because that's who the people tuning in expect to see. And if you're paying your lead actor lots and lots of money, you don't want them sitting around doing nothing for half the show. So I thought, well, we can do this with this book, because, I mean, we can use Dr. Omega in any way, shape, or form we'd like. We're not paying him. He can sit out half the book if there's some other interesting story going on. So we were just experimenting. We were playing around with ideas and concepts and things and just having a huge amount of fun with it. Yeah, I think that comes through, you know, as a reader. You know, you can tell when a writer is yeah. enjoying what they're doing or when a writer is just like, I have to produce this content because yeah. <laughs> it's expected. Yeah. I'm actually reading something right now that it feels like to me that, I mean, I don't know for sure, but it feels to me like the writer feels like, oh, I have a deadline. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's the exact thing we didn't want. Yeah, we didn't want anybody to feel like we were forced to write this. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a writer, there's nobody watching me write. Nobody knows whether I'm working or not. All they know is sooner or later a product comes out at the other end. But to motivate myself each day to write, I have to be going, I can't wait to get on to the next chapter. You know, I've got, I'm so enthralled in it myself. I really, really want to do this. And I'm at the point where I can choose. I can just simply say, that doesn't sound like it will be fun. Or this sounds like I'm going to have the most heck of a fun run with it. So that's basically what I do nowadays, is I say, I'm only doing projects that really, really will get me motivated. And certainly Dr. Omega did. As I said, I wrote six books before I stopped and then said, oh, yeah, right, we're still publishing number one <laughs> but i didn't care i was having too much fun to stop 
Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear that there's a lot of life left to the series because yes. I read the first two and now I'm ready for number three. So I'm glad to hear that he has it for when he's able to publish it. Yeah. Number three is an alien invasion story, but it's an alien invasion on another planet. Mm-hmm. So it's one species of aliens invading another species of aliens. And that was more interesting from that point of view. It avoided the usual aliens coming to Earth routine, which we've had some, you know, I've had so much of. So I'm, I'm kind of a bit done out with that one. Every time I'm doing alien invasions these days, it's kind of like, hmm, what can I do that's really different? Yeah. <laughs> and the, the answer is not a lot. So that's why I kind of avoid them a lot. You touched on it a little bit, but one of the things I wanted to ask you is, how do you feel writing for Dr. Omega is different from writing? I mean, you mentioned one thing, which is that you can do something unusual, like have the doctor sit out for half the story. But do you find that there's any other differences in how you approach writing for Dr. Omega versus the doctor? It's probably not easy to explain, but they don't seem like the same character at all to me. Mm -hmm. Because I have to get inside their heads when I'm writing them. I mean, Dr. Omega isn't as cranky as the Hartnell Doctor. He's very egotistical, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I think he's more empathic than the Hartnell character, especially after Miss Midnight kicks him around a bit. Then he becomes, he starts realizing, oh, yes, I've got to think of somebody else. Whereas with Dennis Borrell and Fred, he was in charge and they just bowed to every, everything he said. Whereas she does not emphatically does not bow to everything he says. So he's having to be a bit more relatable in that sense, I think. And other than that, yeah, he's got a lot of Hartnell in him. I mean, he's got the scientific arrogance of Hartnell. That's certainly true. And he does like to be appreciated and or almost worshipped, if you like, <laughs> for being who he is. But I, I've made him a quiet, he's a quieter kind of chap. He, he doesn't, you know, rush in and do things. Mm-hmm. He's quite happy um, to sit in his, sh- in his ship with a cup of tea and a good book. And he, he doesn't feel compelled to go out and do things. He usually gets dragged into them. And then again, Hartnell was too. Right. <laughs> As I say, I can, I can see the difference in my mind, but I'm not sure I can explain it properly. Right. Well, and totally, too, because when I was reading the books, I expected them to feel very much like, you know, because I I knew that that's, you know, a lot of people in fandom were saying, like, you know, Sidney Newman, because he was raised in Canada, he might have been exposed to this book, which was a French book, and, you know, et cetera. And so I was expecting the books to read as if they were Hartnell stories, but they feel more like adventure serials to me. And it feels tonally even. It doesn't feel like... 60s Doctor Who it feels like it's it's definitely it still feels like it's from another era but I I mean that in a good way like it's something that we don't have now that's actually exciting you know to like read from another era but yeah I don't know if you feel like that there's any truth to that but that's what I I get it feels like an adventure serial when I read it yeah well the stories I write for Jean-Marc are based on classic stories so I try and write them in the manner they would have been written if the original author had written them. Mm. So I tried to make, originally, Dr. Omega as close to the 
novels character as I could mm-hmm. and everything. With the new series, with the um, Andrews book, I changed that somewhat. I've put some of that into the background. But I always try and remain authentic. I mean, that's the key to writing a good Doctor Who novel. You have to, The character has to read like the character you've seen on the TV. It can't be your interpretation of the character. It's got to be the original character in a new story. And I do the same with these stories, that they, they should be alike the originals, not too alike, because sometimes their atti- you know, the attitudes of the writer back then are a little off, as you probably realize. I mean, I've written pastiches of Jules Verne, and Verne was very anti-Semitic. So, you know, I mean, I'm not going to do that, Verne. Right. Jules Verne pushed a little bit into a, a slightly better direction. But that kind of thing. And that's how I see writing Dr. Omega. It's pushing the original just a little bit, but staying true so that I can imagine that if Gallopin was writing them nowadays, this is the kind of thing he would be writing with him. Oh, that's interesting. Like I say, I, I'm a fan of the books and I'm looking forward to seeing what comes from these stories as they continue. And hopefully beyond when six are published, there'll be more to come after that. Oh, I, I would hope so. I, I have such fun with them. They've been some of the most entertaining writing I've done in a long time. But yeah, John, thank you. I think our time is up now, but I really appreciated you coming on the show and talking about Doctor Who and Doctor Omega. And I hope that you have a great rest of your evening and feel free to stop by the 42 cast anytime. Okay, terrific. I've had a great deal of fun um, remembering all these things, actually. (laughs) Yes. And that's it for the interview with John Peel. John, if you're listening to this, thank you again for being very generous with your time and sitting down and talking with me. I had a good time talking with you, and you're welcome on the 42Cast anytime if you want to talk about your next book or anything like that. It doesn't have to be a full interview or anything of that nature, so just let me know. But now I'm interested in what all of you who are listening thought. What do you like about the episodes? What do you not like about the episodes? You can let us know in a variety of ways. One way is to email us at everything at 42Cast.com. Another way is to go to our website at 42Cast.com and leave us feedback on any of the episodes. You can go to our Facebook, which is facebook.com slash 42cast. You can tweet to us at 42cast, or you can go to our Instagram at 42cast. You can also leave us reviews on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts. The reviews are actually really helpful on Apple Podcasts because Apple uses those reviews as a way of promoting, of determining what shows to promote. The more reviews a podcast has, the more that they are going to promote that podcast. So if you have any time, you've got an Apple account, please just leave some feedback on there. Help promote the 42Cast. I also want to mention the ESO Patreon. That is something that helps all of the shows on the ESO network, not just the 42Cast. Helps us all keep running, all doing what we're doing. So if you want to check that out, you can go to patreon.com slash ESO network. There are several different tiers. They'll give you access to some shows that have early episodes. Some shows have exclusive episodes. There's a whole podcast that is exclusive to the ESO Network Patreon, so you can check that out. So if you have any extra funds and would like to contribute, then we would definitely appreciate it. 
And finally, you can also check me out on Time Streams, which is the other podcast that I am currently on, where my friend Juliet and I are watching through all of Doctor Who from the beginning, giving our commentary on it. You don't have to watch the episodes because we tell you what happened in the episodes. So if you just want to hear us talking about the show and just want to sort of learn about Doctor Who from us talking, you can do that. Or you can watch the episodes before listening to our podcast about it, and in which case you'll probably get a little more out of it. But definitely wanted to set things up so that people didn't have to watch the show to watch the podcast. And I'm also going to plug Legendary Forces, which will be out soon with our first episode, but that's where we're going to watch through all of Star Wars fictional media. Myself, Joe Heath, Ashley Pauls, Kareen Vitek, and also Juliet, again. <laughs> She's not just on time streams. And we're watching through all of Star Wars fictional media from the beginning. And that's already starting to be a very fascinating podcast because of just how different the expanded media was in those early, early days in the 1970s. So we will review the content. We will let you know if it's worth checking out. So yeah, um, definitely check out Legendary Forces and I'll let you know on the 42 cast when that is available. But that's it for our show this week. Join us back next week when Billy D. Williams will not be joining us. And until then, this is Nathan signing off. You have been listening to the 42 cast copyright 2021. Got a question for the ultimate answer? Contact us at everything at 42 cast.com. Theme music is Sharper Swords by Brandon Ellis. Check out more of his work at www.cityfires.com. The 42 Cast is a proud member of the ESO Network. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.